Good morning, Southcrest. How we doing? You guys awake? You guys ready? You guys pumped? Uh, my name is Matt, and uh, I'm the campus pastor here. It's an absolute privilege. I know I say that every time I stand up here, but it truly is a privilege uh, to be speaking you, to you today. Um, and we're going to have some fun. Uh, we are kicking off a brand new series called Yes and Amen. We are looking at the promises of God that we see throughout Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament. And uh, we are looking at what you and I as believers can go to our Father and what we can count on from Him. And uh, it's going to be a fun, fun series. We're going to take, I don't know, a few weeks, three or four weeks. And I just really want to take our attention and, and just focus it on God and uh, take our hearts and our minds and set it on Him and His faithfulness and uh, promises, right? You begin to take a look at what a promise actually is. And here's a simple definition. A promise is this, right? It's a declaration or assurance that one will do a particular thing or that a particular thing will happen. And if you start thinking about that and breaking that down, really the weight of a promise isn't necessarily set on the particular thing that will happen in the future. The weight of a promise actually lands on the person that makes the promise. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. A promise is only as good as the person making it. And you see, from time to time, you and I, we are guilty, right, of, of saying something and not coming through on our word. Is anybody brave enough to raise your hand and say, yeah, I've done that before? Oh, man, we're in church. Y'all ain't supposed to lie. That's okay. Man, yeah, all of us have. We've said something, and then all of a sudden, I can't do it. Or we've been the victim of a promise that was given to us, and it ended up the person broke it. If you bring my kids out here on stage right now, my 10-year-old, my 7-year-old, Eli and Jackson, they would attest to you that they are victims of promises broken when it comes to what we do on the weekends, right? Hey, Mom, Dad, what are we doing this weekend? And, uh, hey, we may go to the park, and we just throw that out there. And for them, they just really hold on to that. They're like, we are going to the park. And so Wednesday comes and Thursday comes and Friday comes and Saturday's here. And they're like, yes, park day. And uh, even though it's pouring down rain outside or something changes and we can't go to the park and we say, hey, we can't go to the park today. We got to go tomorrow. We got to go the next day. Well, listen, that is a moment of melt, massive meltdown, right? Massive meltdown. This is the worst day ever. You broke a promise to me. This is the worst. I can't believe it. So... Me and my wife, we've made a pact. We will no longer tell our kids what we're going to do on the weekends. It's now a surprise, right? It is a surprise. Hey, what are we doing this weekend? It's a surprise. Surprise, we're staying home. Go, go outside and play football. Um, you know, and so we have wised up to that. And, and I began to look at the psychology and reading some articles on, on promises. And uh, I found that a lot of times we make promises based on feelings, that we will throw something out there because it feels good in the moment. Hey, I saw you have a tree down in your yard. I would like to come over and help you cut that tree up. Hey, I'd like to come over and watch your kids because I know you guys need some, you know, a, a break, a date night or whatever it is. Because we intend on being a generous person, but in actuality, we don't always, we're not always that person. And so we make a promise based on feelings. You know, for some people, saying you're going to do something feels just as good it's the same amount of gratification as actually doing it. And in reality, what we see is that when a promise turns into work or when a promise turns into commitment, uh, a lot of us bail on it. And then though from time to time, maybe not all of us all the time, but from time to time, we're either a victim of a broken promise or we break 
promises ourselves. And what happens is, is in turn, we have a hard time trusting people. When somebody has a pattern of broken promises, we have a hard time trusting people. Michael Hyatt says it like this, the strength of our relationships is measured by how much a person can count on us. A pattern of trustworthiness in a relationship, you are, you're going to see if you think about you know, your spouse or a, a boss or a friend, those are going to be strong relationships. And if somebody, the flip side, breaks promises, breaks promises, says they're going to do something, says they're going to, and they don't do that, those are probably weaker relationships. As a Christian, you and I, we're supposed to believe that God is a trustworthy God, that we're able to take him at his word, that whatever he says is the truth. We see in God's word that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And we're supposed to trust them. And if you look all through the scripture, um, some people have done studies, there's over 3,750 promises in God's word, all the way Old Testament to New Testament. And actually, another study I read, they say it's actually over 8,000 because anytime Jesus speaks, he's, he's the truth. He can't lie, so it's a promise, and we can take that to the bank as well. But, but here's the kicker. For some of us in here, if we really get honest... If we really truly get honest with ourselves, we may not totally take God at his word. We may have a hard time trusting him. Maybe some of you in here right now are angry at the Lord because maybe you feel alone in your circumstance right now. Maybe you think, how can a God love me and let me go through this? I can't trust God because he didn't answer my prayer this way. Or I feel all alone, or I'm in the circumstances, or whatever it is. You fill in the blank, and you, you're struggling to take God at his word. And my hope for you today is that you would recommit your heart to him, and that you would trust him. A.W. Tozer says it like this, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me ask you this question. When you think about God, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? When you think about Jesus, when you think about our Heavenly Father, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? It... Is it, eh, I don't know, you know, he left me. Or, or is it, he's my heavenly father and I can trust him each and every day. My hope for you again is that you would walk out of here today believing that God's promises are yes and amen no matter what you go through. Uh, turn with me into the, in your Bibles to Philippians 1. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, we're going to look at actually two promises in God's word, one in the New Testament and one in the Old Testament. And uh, they, these promises kind of go hand in hand, and, uh, you know, but at the same time, these stories are both about some people who were thrown into jail. And uh, Philippians 1, we're going to start in verse 3, and uh, I want to give you some background before we read. The Philippians, uh, they were a church that was started by Paul on a second missionary journey. As he's going around spreading the gospel, he became very close friends with the people at the church of Philippi. They were kindred spirits and they were friends and man, people were getting saved and coming into the church and then those saved people were going out and spreading the gospel and then they were financially supporting Paul to make sure that he's able to go even farther out and spread the gospel even farther. And uh, it's kind of interesting to think that's kind of what we're all about here at Southcrest, right? Our vision is to reach South Atlanta one relationship at a time through the gospel and grace and growth and generosity. You know, as people get saved and come in here, our mission is to go out there, to go out there and tell people about the good news. We're very similar uh, in, in, in churches as, as they are here in the Church of Philippi. Paul was partnered with them, and as he's traveling around, you know, talking about God is no good. You know, they, people hated that. 
And so he was thrown into jail. And we see that the, that the book of Philippians was written from a jail cell. He was in chains. He was thrown in jail. And, and man, isn't it a blessing that we live in America today and we're able to talk about Jesus, we're able to come to a house of worship, and we can worship our Heavenly Father without ever worrying about going to jail or being imprisoned, while all around the world today, people are being persecuted in other parts of this world. Man, it is a privilege to be in America today. I'm thankful. And so Paul, here's what he says, right? He's writing from the jail. Remember that. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy. I absolutely love that, man. The whole book of Philippians is about joy. And uh, it's, it's interesting to note that joy isn't predicated on the place that you find yourself in. Joy is predicated and based on the one who holds you in the place that you find yourself in through your whole life. And even though Paul is in chains, he has joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now... Here's the promise I want us to underline if you've got your Bibles. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my hearts and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. You see, in light of being in jail, Paul was trying to encourage the people at Philippi. And here's the promise. I want to bring us back to to verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Here's how I like to say this promise right here. God isn't finished with you yet. God is not finished with you yet. Here's something that you and I have to continually remind ourselves of. When we wake up in the morning, we have to understand that we are in process. You and I are in process, right? The day that you and I give our life to Christ, he brings us into covenant relationship with himself. It's a covenant that he will never, ever break, And all through our lives, all through the twists and turns and everything that we go through in life, we're being sanctified and we're becoming more and more like him. And the work that he's doing in our hearts will not be complete until the day Jesus comes back and we go to heaven. We are in process. And you you know, I'm I'm sure Paul was realizing that the people at Philippi were probably discouraged and and this partnership that they had and and the money that they've been given to Paul. And now he's in chains. And you could imagine they probably thought, am I next? If, if, If the gospel is prohibited about, you know, being spread, should I, am I going to jail? And Paul was trying to encourage them. And here's what he was saying. He was saying this, hey, Philippian church, there isn't anything that can happen to you that will stop God's work in you. There's nothing that can happen to you that will stop God's work in you. That is important for us to to remember today. That whatever he started in your life, he's faithful to carry it onto completion. He isn't finished with you yet. Be confident. Be confident in this. Let me ask you this question. What are you confident in today? Are you confident in your own self? Are you confident in your own strength and your own ability? Are you actually confident in the trustworthiness of our Heavenly Father who holds everything in the palm of His hand? Paul is saying, hey, get your eyes off of your circumstance and put it on the one who is faithful. His promises are yes and amen. You see, salvation isn't a work of man. Salvation is a work of God. And God is faithful to complete it. He's not finished with you yet. God is not finished 
with you yet. Uh, one of my favorite documentaries that I've ever, I just absolutely love it. I love watching documentaries. and I love to uh, learn about how things are made. And if you know anything about pianos, the greatest piano ever created is a Steinway piano, arguably the best. And there's nobody else that can even come close to what they create. And uh, 95% of the concert halls all across the world and all these major performing artists, they prefer a Steinway piano because it is the best. And uh, there's a documentary, it was on Netflix, they pulled it down, but it was called Note by Note. If you want to look it up, it's, it's amazing. I absolutely love it. Note by Note. I have this short video. It kind of shows you a little bit of the process right here. And I want to talk through, if it'll come up, there it is. Yep. Steinway pianos are made of 85% wood. This wood is air-dried Uh, for well over a year. And then after the air drying process, it's then kiln dried. And then after it's kiln dried, the wood is finally ready to be shaped and glued and clamped into a mold that resembles the piano. And once it gets to that point, it has to then go into a closet, into a room, and it has to cure for many, many months before they can even continue on to the next process. Once it's cured, they can begin adding the soundboard, which is this big piece of maple wood, and then they, they'll add the bridge, and they'll carve it up. This is them putting in the, in the soundboard right now, and then you'll see them carving the, the bridge and, and everything that it goes on to, the structure of it. Once that process is done, and not a minute before it's absolutely perfect, they then go and they add the, iron, the cast iron frame. Once the cast iron frame is set into the belly of the piano, um, and the guy, the craftsman, is actually, he's called the belly man, and so they put it in there, they clamp it down, they bolt it down. Once that's done, they then add the strings. Strings are added by hand, one at a time, after another, after another. And once the strings are in place, they begin working on the action set. That's this section right here where the hammers are, and the, and the, the keys are, and the felt pieces are. And it's meticulously crafted, each part carved and carved until it's absolutely perfected. Once it's perfected, it then goes on to what's called the voicing. They check to make sure the voicing is right. They make sure it's not too bright or not too warm. Make sure that it's brilliant, but make sure it's round. And and so there's a craftsman who will spend countless hours. He will uh, start note by note, hence the name of the documentary. He'll start note number one, Number two, number three, and oh, number three strikes harder than note number one, so he stops the whole process, he slides the thing out, he gets these pins, and he starts, he starts softening the felt piece on, that ham- on the hammer. And then he'll slide that set back in, he'll start back over. Number one, he's listening, and he goes, and he goes, and he goes, and he repeats this process over and over and over until it's absolutely perfect. And then from there, it's tuned. Steinway is one of the only companies that hand tunes by ear their pianos. And uh, they'll go, they'll, they'll rough tune it in, he'll play it, he'll tune it again, tune it again. It's a long, arduous process of making sure it's absolutely perfect. The L1037, the piano you just saw right there, takes over a year to construct after the wood is even ready. And it takes 12,000 parts, 450 craftsmen, and countless hours of labor to create the world's perfect, most brilliant, most beautiful piano ever made. And they do it all the time, over and over and over. And I was thinking through that. At any point in the middle of that process, it is not finished, right? Steinway owns all the raw materials. Steinway has purchased the wood and the, the iron and, the, and everything, but it's not done. And those master craftsmen, they understand that it has to go through each and every step, and no step is rushed. It's perfect. 
No step is, is, is cut out. We don't cut corners at Steinway. It has to be absolutely perfect. And beginning to think about what the Lord is doing in us, how we are in process, and everything we go through, the bumps, the turns, the twists, it is all a part of the process, and God is not finished with you yet. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, I've had conversations with people over the past few weeks, and, and it's, it's interesting to hear kind of what people are going through right now. Conversations ranging from, man, I'm just not hearing God right now in my life. I am, I am praying. I am reading God's word. I'm in a devotional. I'm in a life group. And I'm just not hearing God speak to me. I feel like, I feel like there's a distance between us. Maybe some of you feel like you're in that position right now. You know, I've had other conversations with people who are, who are stuck. They're, they feel like they're questioning God's calling on their life, and they just don't know. And they sound almost desperate, like, man, I'm just, I just need to know, you know, if God would just write it in the sky for me. But he hasn't. He, doesn't, he hasn't told me. And, I, and I'm just encouraging him, hey, it's part of the process. Trust him. Trust him in the process. You know, there's other people that are stuck in, um, you know, situations where they're, I don't know, stuck in, in uh, addictions or, or maybe they feel like they're in transition. I've had a handful of conversations with people that, that have said, man, I feel like my life is just in constant transition, constant transition. I don't feel like there's any stability in my life right now and, I'm, and, and I just don't know what God is up to. I want you to understand, be confident that he who began a good work in you is faithful to carry it on to completion. You have no reason to doubt our Heavenly Father. He's a promise-keeping God. He is a promise-keeping God. And that's what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, hey, listen, be confident, man. Don't doubt. What happens when you and I doubt God? We open the doorway to the enemy to get a foothold on our life. The enemy's like, oh, you're, you're doubting. Okay, I got you. Yeah, oh, well, maybe God's not. Maybe God's not a trustworthy God. And all of a sudden, you start entertaining thoughts. You start entertaining thoughts. And what Paul is trying to catch, capture here in Philippians is say, nope, you be confident that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. God is not finished with you yet. God is not done with you yet. I want us to take a listen to this song. Olivia's going to sing it with Trey and Moises. And I just want you to sit and listen to the words and uh, really just let it minister to your heart. Think about it. Go before the Lord. And uh, let's just take a minute and hear this. I will trust you. I will. 
God's not finished yet. He's not finished with you. He's not finished with me. He's not finished with Southcrest. He's not finished with what we're going to do here in South Atlanta. He's got a plan. He's not done with us. He's not done with you. And we can trust him in that promise. This next promise uh, is found in uh, Genesis 39. If you want to take your Bibles, turn me to Genesis 39. And uh, we're going to look at the life of Joseph. Man, this is one of my absolute favorite stories in the Bible. And this promise is very simple, and it goes hand in hand with what we just talked about. And it's this, God is always with us. God is always with us. Even though he's not done with us, he's, he's began a work in us, and he's going to complete it. And all through the middle, all through this whole process, this whole journey, God is with us through each and every day. In Genesis 39, we see... Um, kind of the middle part of the story of Joseph. And I want to give you a little background before we dive into it. Joseph was the son of Jacob. Jacob, uh, it was a large, very large family, and uh, Joseph was favored by his father. Uh, it says in scriptures that, uh, that Joseph was born when Jacob was late in his years, uh, very older in, older in life, and that his father favored him. We see he gave him a coat of many colors and all this stuff, and just he was just favored, right? And uh, he had 10 half-brothers, a very big family, and these brothers had some serious sibling rivalry, right? If you have a brother and sister, at some point in your life, you probably have had a disagreement. We'll, we'll use the light word, a disagreement with your brother or your sister. And uh, for me, I've definitely, I, I will attest to that. I wanted to strangle my brother uh, many times growing up. Uh, but we never got to this point where we actually wanted to kill each other, uh, maybe in word, but not in reality. Uh, but here we see Joseph's 10 half-brothers actually wanted to kill Joseph. And so to make a long story short, I really encourage you to go back and read it. It's amazing. Um, we see him. They take Joseph, throw him down in the pit, and they're arguing back and forth. Should we kill him? Yeah, let's kill him. No, I don't want the blood on my hands. Blah, blah, blah. Back and forth. And again, to make a long story short, he's sold into slavery. So we see a life where Joseph is favored, like he's living life, and it's great, and it's awesome. And then all of a sudden, his brothers hate him, and he's, in turn, he's getting dreams from God, and so he's back and, back and forth. And now he is at the lowest point of his life, in a pit, after the pit, sold into slavery. And that's where we pick up in Genesis 39. And I'm going to read... Bear with me. I'm going to read the whole chapter, okay? So it's such a good story, and, and uh, it'll help us set up this point. It says this, Genesis 39. Now Joseph, being, I'm sorry, had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmael, I'm sorry, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph. There's the promise that we're talking. Underline that in your Bible. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything that he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. 
So from, the, from a pit, sold into slavery, my life is over. So they could kill me. They have every right. I'm owned by these people. And now all of a sudden, we're seeing God with him and blessing in his life. Potiphar put him in charge of the house, of his house, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me, right? This woman is crazy. This is a scene straight out of Desperate House, but whatever it is, right? This woman is nuts. Uh, But he refused. He said, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God, you crazy woman? I added that. That's the expansion, Matt McFadden version. Um, and, though he sp- and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. Getting, getting a little violent here, getting crazy. But he left his cloak with her, uh, in her hand and ran out of the house. And when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had ran out of the house, she called her house servants. This girl's about to tell a story. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew had been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home, and then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story of his wife, uh, told him, saying, this is how you, your slave treated me, he burned with anger. We're about to see him go from attendant, blessed, and everything, and the story's about to take a very quick turn. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who, ha- who were held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Here's what's super cool. You know, reading this, you know, many, many times. And every time I get through this, I just get chills and the Lord whispers to me and he says, Matt, no matter if you're at the highest highs or if you're cast down into the dungeon, I'm with you regardless. I'm with you when you're in the palace and when you're, you're, life is great and everything, everybody's healthy and when, when things are just up and to the right. And I'm with you when you are at the worst of your worst. I'm with you when you're going through the hardest season of your life or whatever trial it may be. I'm there with you. And the promise is this. God is always with us. 
no matter where we are. You see, we see this promise all throughout Scripture. God's promise is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. In Matthew 28, Jesus is talking. He says, Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. And we even see in Psalms 23, David's talking, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Emmanuel is another name for God, which is translated God with us. It's a promise that is all throughout Scripture. And for some reason, what we, when we go through issues in life, we, we seem to forget this. We seem to just let this promise go out the window and we feel like we're all alone and we're by ourselves. And the reality is that God is with us no matter what. God is always, always with us. You see, if you think about it, God is omnipresent, right? God is, God is right here. God is there. God is everywhere. God created, think about it, God created space. He's not confined to space. He created it, right? He also created time. He doesn't live in time. He, he lives outside of time. He created it. So he's the God of yesterday, he's the God of today, and he's the God of tomorrow, all at the same time. And to think about that, he knows you're going to wake up in the morning. He's there. He's going to be waiting for you at breakfast. He knows he's going to be waiting for you at work. He's already there. He already knows what you're going to go through. He knows what you're going to have for dinner when you get home that night. He knows where you're going to be in 50 years. Anything you go through is not a surprise for him. He's already in tomorrow waiting for you without ever leaving your side today. Without ever leaving your side today, God is always with you. That's a promise that we need to remind ourselves all the time. God's with me today. You know that thing I'm worried about tomorrow on Monday that I'm about to walk into at work? God's already there. He's not surprised by it. He's there waiting for me. That health thing, that doctor's appointment, that whatever it is you're going through, he's waiting for you there. It's not, he's not surprised by that. He's there. He's with you. And as our life takes turns and twists, and they go through bumps, and they go through valleys, and they go through mountaintops. God is not done with you yet, and through the entire process, he's with you the whole time. 